I'm here talking with Tom Kale. Um, he is a Unity developer. He's worked a lot on projects like the Open Source Inc. Um, he's here today just to have a little chat about what he's been up to and uh, introduce himself. Norwich, uh, which is like the, the pimply bit on the edge of the UK, uh, and then I moved to Bournemouth to study, and then back up to Cambridge, which is where I live now. Uh, I think we're here for the long term at this point. What um, were you studying in Bournemouth? I did interactive media production, which was kind of a cop-out, because I wasn't a very good programmer, I was dressed <laughs> programmer, and uh, I sort of liked mu like movies, so I was like, okay, I'll do something that's sort of in between. Um, and I kind of just, this was like 2010, so like the indie scene was really starting to come up. And I sort of just started making indie games in Flash, uh, and I didn't really do any coursework at all. But because it was an interactive media course, they were kind of like, oh, cool, you made a game. Yeah, you should just submit that. Uh, and so I did. And so I managed to kind of skate by just kind of making weird indie games. Um, it was a perfect <laughs> time and place, I think. That's so cool. So you started out using Flash and that was Action Scripts, right? Yeah, Action Scripts 3, which was awful. Um, really bad by yes, Flash. So you said um, that you, you were programming sorry, you were programming before you went to university. But well, you you I did a computing A level, uh, but my, ah. I was so bad at it. My teachers told me you should never become a programmer. Wow, that's, um, that's no, either really motivating <laughs> or really off-putting. <laughs> I, I think it probably meant well, but I really was bad at it. Um, and I basically came to the conclusion that programming for itself, like for its own sake, is boring, but making games is really fun. Um, mm. I think really just trying to convince people to do it for their own sake. Uh, some people just aren't into that. But maybe yeah, that, that's so interesting because I think I had quite a similar experience. I did computing at A level, and I seem to remember flunking it mainly because uh, I ended up just trying to help this guy that I was sitting next to. And it just meant that I got further and further behind. But like you, it was just incredibly boring. It, you know, making some kind of button that would access. Anyway, it was terrible. And then I went <laughs> off to university and studied digital art because I loved you know, computer stuff. But again, didn't have that really strong programming background. But it was at university where I started really loving to do programming because I found what it was that I enjoyed doing so very similar to you you know you find games you find something and then that just draws your interest in and keeps you completely hooked on it so that's cool so what um did your flash games get anywhere did they uh did they get internet notoriety no not even a little bit I don't think I ever <laughs> I mean, this was really the waning years of Flash. Um, so after about a year and a half of that, I started messing around with HTML5, which at the time was being touted as like the next Flash. Yeah. But that obviously didn't really work out for whatever reason, I don't know. Um, and I kind of just, at the same time, somebody was showing me Unity, I don't know, 3 or something. And like, it was in 3D and it had this like visual editor and you could like paint islands. And it was just so obviously the better tool to use if you wanted to make games. Um, I think the first thing I did was like a, sh you know, just a standard first person shooter, um, you know, Raycast, yeah. play explosion sound. Uh, and yeah, it was just kind of like, oh, wow, I can do this in a day. And, you know, it would have taken me years to do anything even approximately that good in Flash or HTML5. So, so was that JavaScript that back then? We're using JavaScript. 
Yeah, and I think that was actually a really big help for me. I kind of moved away from it, I think, because a lot of the more interesting code examples on the internet were written in C Sharp. And I sort of basically realized, oh, I really probably do need to learn this. And it's not so intimidating. But when you're just getting started out, the fact that it was in JavaScript and I already knew JavaScript, that was a massive help for me. I think they had Boo at the time as well, which I don't think anyone ever used. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, it all changed. Cool. So, um, so these were kind of demos that you were releasing on to online. Were you sharing them in communities, or was it more just with your friends? What was? How are you getting them out? Mostly with friends, but I did I did release a couple of things. Um, I had a game called Vectagon. Uh, I had another one in HTML5 uh called canvas cat which is a kind of cannibal clone it was all very uh early indie stuff you know like oh i like this game i'll try remaking this game um or like uh, you know you fall in love with some very small part of the engine like procedural mesh generation and you just build a thing um and i think it took me a while before i started realizing that i needed to make things that were actually fun um, and there weren't just like fun tech demos for myself um although good way to learn I think it's a brilliant way to learn, taking something that you really like and trying to remake it. That's just, it, it's true. It's so good. I think I sort of struggle a lot because I always want to create something new and then I get bogged down in the details. And before I know it, I'm like, eh, next, move on to the next. But if you can take an idea that you know works and reprogram, make it all yourself, actually finish it because it's that last 10% of any project. You know, and if you can actually finish it, then you're going to be finishing projects one after the other. So can you remember what your first game was that you actually completed, you actually finished and felt? You know what? I'm really bad at this. I think in a way <laughs> I've never finished anything. There are things that I've released almost out of like, oh, I'm sick of this. I just need to get it out there. Um, but at the same time, I think that's basically how it goes in real game production as well. Like having worked in, you know, bigger studios and things. Um, I get the feeling that stuff basically gets shipped because everyone is just sick of working on it and we're running out of money more than like, okay, this is totally done and there's nothing more we could ever want to add to this and we're all perfectly content. I've never been in that situation. Oh no, once, once or twice, Overboard, I think was the only game where we were like, yeah, there's really nothing else we want to do here. This is done. That's amazing. Oh, I'd love to be at that <laughs> stage. Cool. So um, what? how did the team make choices like what to stop working on was it a case of okay we have to make it so it's bug free but then you just kind of did you make a list of the top priority and we're like we have to have that let's get rid of that how what was your thinking behind it to actually ship the product uh, on which game you could take any game give us an example of one any that um, you got absolutely sick of and uh, but managed to to get it out the door <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's all the games. Uh, <laughs> mm, that's a good question. I mean, no. I'll use my own personal work then. I'll, I'll use Vectagon as an example. So this was a kind of 3D infinite runner in a tube kind of game, as I'm sure you've all seen thousands of, uh, but it was fun to work on. And it was one of those games where like, the more I worked on it, the more I kind of saw the, the flaws in the design and the more I wanted to you know, change it. And I did that loop a few times before I realized that this way leads to madness. And I was like, you know, what? I just need to get this out. You know, like I could keep writing tasks for myself uh, and change the game and probably move further away from something that's good, even if it's different, uh, or I can just ship it right now. And so I pretty much did that. I think I just kind of added a title screen and just put it on the internet. Um, not sure that was a very good example of anything because I didn't- Oh, I think, I think that is. 
I think <laughs> I think you're so right because it's so easy to get bogged down in the little tiny details, isn't it? To iterate, iterate, and to just move further and further away from what your original core idea was. I quite often um, make a a notepad, so I've got um, I've got a sort of notepad where I just write down all the ideas that I'm having while I'm making the game, and I'm like. You know, if I'm on a rainy day and I need a new idea, I can come back here. Or just by writing it down and getting it out of the system, it means that I can sort of stop obsessing about it and thinking about how can I pull it into the game. So that that's a tactic that I like to use just to create a document where I can get stuff out of my brain. It's pretend to myself someday it will be made. You know, I think that's that's one way of doing it. I think that's totally true. I've started doing the same thing. And what I've often found is like, a game or a, a really interesting idea that keeps you up at night with how you know promising it is. As soon as you write it down and you come back to it the next day, you think, no, this is shit. It's just like five reasons. And yeah. if you don't write it down, it doesn't really happen. You don't get that, you know, the hard light of day doesn't ever fall on the idea. Yeah, exactly. There's something about getting it out of your brain and onto paper or in or just doing a little bit of testing to see. Um, I think another really good tactic with with games as well as uh, just to draw a diagram, cut out some pieces of paper and pretend that you're playing it because that way you kind of start to see all the difficulties and in your mind, you've got all these beautiful graphics and everything flowing around. But if you can just simplify it, it makes a real difference. I think that's really true, yeah. For a long time, I tried to do the thing of just picturing how the game would run and running it in my head, but it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. You aren't able to imagine the things that won't work a lot of the time. Just mm. maybe. I remember reading um, Nikola Tesla's autobiography, and he was a crazy person, like 100% just absolutely nuts. But he apparently was able to do this. He never wrote down his ideas for you know really complicated machines. He would just imagine them and run them in his head. And then he would build them and they would work because he was actually a genius. And I sort wow. of love that so much. I wish I could do that with games. Like I wouldn't need to, you know, build prototypes and just play them up here. It'd be great. No that, problem. But no one can do that. <laughs> well, actually, that. having you saying no, I've actually met someone that described exactly what you just said, but he he's a builder and he is just incredibly good at walking into a space and knowing all the measurements, like how much everything should be, all the materials, he can just visualize it all, go off and just order it, and then boom, goes in and fits it all out. So it's kind of interesting, like maybe this guy is Nikola Tesla, but he's applying all his knowledge to fitting out kitchens and like <laughs> shit when he could be building the most incredible machines in the world. Oh, well. Um, I have need a kitchen. I'll have to ask for his number. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm going to pass him the Nikola, Nikola Tesla autobiography as a Christmas present. See, see if that, that <laughs> does something. So, um, you you seem like a very creative person. Do you do fiction writing? Play instruments? Do you have other sort of hobbies that you? Uh, I'm a bad guitarist. Um, <laughs> I enjoy that a lot. I enjoy being. I enjoy having the hobby far more than I enjoy being good at it. Um, I will never be a, a musician, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> I don't write at all, which is weird considering I've just done the ink uh, thing. Um, I think what I enjoy about ink is being able to work with writers. Um, it's a process that makes a lot of sense to me, and I can see how it enables writers to build things that they otherwise just can't make. I'm 100% that 
the reason that a lot of uh, games aren't very ambitious with the way that their stories are structured, even if the writing is fantastic. It's just because the tools aren't there. Like straight up, you want to do branching narratives and you don't have a tool, how do you do it? Lots of if statements in code. Writers aren't going to do that. So you end up putting stuff in spreadsheets, which is just awful. Or you use Twine, which is great, but limited. You can't write, you know, a big, you could never do a Bioware game in Twine, right? You'd just be too big. You'd have too many boxes and you'd lose track and you'd go insane. Um, but we think it's kind of possible. And you can do, you know, there's enough complexity to the system there that if you wanted to build something, you know, like Hades, you could. You could find a way to do that without too much work. Um, so, so I, th I, I really think like talking to writers about this sort of thing. Yeah, so that's really cool. So you you prefer to build the tools that enable people to be creative or collaborate. And I guess um, your creativity comes from how you build these tools and allow the people to do that. Um, and I think what your point about having uh, a writer be very able to join the project is incredibly powerful. And I think you're absolutely right. Over the next few years, it's going to lead to games which are much richer, much, much more content, and particularly for indies as well. Because at the moment, if you want to have that kind of level, it's all AAA um, games, titles, where they can, they can go off onto these big uh, divergent storylines. But Inc. is definitely allowing companies and people to come together and do this, you know. One, all you need is one indie Unity developer and one really good scriptwriter, and you can do some really powerful in-depth in uh, storylines. So that's yeah. really cool. I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, one of the things that we considered a secret weapon at Inkle is that by focusing on games that are heavily text-driven, they are in a lot of ways complicated choose-your-own-adventures, you're able to make games of a scope that nobody else can make. Um, if you're making 3D art, it takes a very long time to build anything. Like even if you build like a barrel, to texture the barrels and then, you know, model the barrels, put the barrel in your game. It's like, even for someone who's good, it's like a day's work, half a day's work, like it's time, like real time. But a writer can produce like 10,000 words in a day. That's a lot of content. Like you can build vast, complicated branching stories in a very small amount of time. Text is cheap like from a game development point of view, it's incredibly cheap. So one programmer, one writer can go off and build just unbelievably cool things that nobody has seen. Um, it's just that we haven't really had the tools to enable that yet. So even though text is cheap, writing branching narratives has traditionally not been, um, or at least not been as cheap as it could be. Um, so I think there are a lot of opportunities out there for people to build really cool interactive stories um, and, you know, obviously to improve them, to polish them up with great visuals and great sounds as well. Um, but if you put the focus on the text rather than, you know, immersive 3D scenes, I think you can do things that nobody else is doing. So just on that point, have you played MUDs before, multi-user dungeons? Barely. It's sort of <laughs> my time and I don't really understand the scene at all. It scares me. <laughs> Okay, so I have a confession. That was like my first online gaming experience when I was 14 and I was tuned into Discworld Muds. Um, and I think what really blew my mind at the time is I was using a, a Mac, like black and white second edition and playing playing games. Uh, I, would, I would hate to play just an offline text adventure, but um, the fact that it was all online 
and had just the depth that you were talking about where um you know for example i could go into a shop and start stealing things using commands i could modify items of clothing or even when i did uh, emotes with friends like i could write my own descriptions like i could do an atomic wedgie to someone which in uh, a game like fortnite you'd need to have the atomic wedgie uh, animation in order to do it which is a very expensive but i just did it for free because it was a mud um i guess how how would you see like ink being used in a multiplayer type scenario? Have you thought about that at all? It's come up a couple of times. It's not something we've ever really tried. Um, mm. One of the experiments we saw that I thought was quite interesting is they had two ink stories, one for player A and one for player B, and this was a kind of conversation game. I can't remember how that worked. It was a game jam thing, um, but I thought that was really neat. Um, one thing that I have tried actually is having a single ink story but players vote on which branch you go down, kind of like Twitch plays Pokemon almost. Um, and that can work quite well. Um, or you, you can imagine a thousand different ways to do a voting system where you have a group of people deciding which branch you go down. And you can do interesting things with that. You can you know, hide choices from some players or have special choices that only appear if you've done a certain thing in the game or the majority have done a certain thing or any player has a certain thing. Um, in terms of building full-on MUDs, I don't know. Um, I wasn't yeah I wasn't thinking so much of building a mud with it because obviously there's tools dedicated for that but I think my question was more around this because while I was playing Discworld mud I was always like this would be so amazing if I had more of a 3D interface to be able to understand better what was happening because I think a lot of people coming to a mud are completely put off because there's just streams and streams of text flying past especially while you're doing things like combat um, but as you're playing, you kind of learn to to get rid of it. But a lot of that type of um, fast-paced content could be sort of mixed with 3D. So I'll give an example. Like I'm I'm producing a game, and inside the game, I want to have these kind of rich um, story interactions. But I don't want to spend hours and hours doing all the animations. So I've created a kind of window that is on or a panel on alongside the game. So as players are interacting, like for example, picking up an object, there's no bending down animation, but it will say, you know, you picked up the object, but that could start to go a lot deeper, especially with ink. Now that I'm looking at that, maybe what you could do is it could start to tell a bit of a story. Like you try to pick up the object, but then it's a, but you fail. Maybe there could be some dice roll there or not, but then there's more choices. Like maybe, you know, you could try and, pick it up from the bottom, from the top. And I, I see ink as being able to, to have this kind of two-way interaction with objects to be able to go a lot deeper into it. Um, so I guess that that's where I was coming from. It's more um, how can we be using ink to, uh, to give 3D or uh, 3D games like more richer, more depth storylines. And, and so that's some, something that I've been exploring. But on the multiplayer side of it, I was thinking as well, like, um, so you could, for example, take uh, a story that's happening. Maybe an evil ogre has taken over a village, but then by players doing certain things, like maybe a player starts leaving a sheep on the outskirts of the village and it attracts something, that could affect the story that changes what, what what's happening inside the village for all the players 
Um, so that's more what I was sort of leaning towards with with using ink. Do you, I mean, do you have much experience making multiplayer games? Um, I'm trying to think potentially how that very little. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I'm sure that sort of thing would be possible. I mean, it's I guess what you're describing is uh, a bunch of variables that are stored on the server that are then relayed out to everybody else else's ink script. So everybody runs the same like individual ink scripts for the world state mm. and where they are in the world is, you know, all run um, per shard or per user. But then the world state things like has the dragon been killed is uh, a variable that's in each person's ink file, but it's set from the server. So you control that. So I think, yeah, I think you could do a lot of cool things. I've never played around with it. Uh, it's a really cool idea. And actually just thinking about how you said that, maybe what it would be is there's this sort of overarching story, but then each player has their own story. And I'm wondering if there would be a way that when two players interact with each other, that the st their story could kind of update somehow when they interact with NPCs. Yeah, okay. My mind's going off on one now. <laughs> I think <laughs> I need to explore ink, definitely, and, uh, and see, see where this can go. If you ever want to look at some cool 3D games that use ink in a, a more interesting way, uh, yeah. but Sable came out recently, Sable uses ink. Um, they mostly use ink in a, just a straight up talk to a character. Here's a, you know, a dialogue menu kind of thing. Heaven's Vault, uh, which is an Inkle game, uses ink in some really interesting ways. All of the interactive things in the game are just ink choices. So if there's, I don't know, a pedestal, you can go up to the pedestal and you can interact with it and then the character will remark on it or maybe uh, you can put an item there. All of this is in the ink, like all of the game logic. So wow. the pedestal is interactive if there is a choice in the ink that says pedestal. Um, it's just straight up that simple. So. Mm you can start building in like you can have characters observe stuff like if there is a choice that says look at the owl then that choice could just be chosen automatically by the game as soon as you enter the trigger radius of owl and then your game starts feeling like magic you walk around and the character just starts talking about stuff kind of like an uncharted game and it's super easy to write because it's just in the script like if there's a choice it'll just get picked and then the game side can kind of determine when stuff gets picked, you know, at random or which things need the player to interact. Um, but it's pretty easy to write. The rules for that are like, well, if the choice starts with ambient interactive or something like that, then it's, it's just put, it picks automatically every 30 seconds if there is one. And then everything else has to be, you know, button clicked and it shows a bit of UI. That's incredible. And it's so lightweight as well. You don't have scripts and text scattered all over your assets you've got it in one concise place that you can update that's really fucking cool i love that all right so um i guess thinking about ink in the future like virtual reality have you thought about vr ink type games how that is there any special ideas around that i've never seen one they've got to be uh, i'm sure somebody's done it um yeah i mean obviously you could really easily uh, yeah, it's not something I've ever really thought about. I've never, well, up to now, done any work in VR, although I'm looking at it at the moment. So many Oculus Quest 2s have been sold. There's a real money-making opportunity for something like <laughs> Yeah, I'm thinking because uh, you could potentially use voice to text. So you're inside virtual reality. Um, you could talk your commands um, or the, the text and use ink. So you could do a 
a voice to text and then put that into to ink to to get the responses right just choose the closest choice semantically yeah we've yeah. seen a chatbot i think some airline used a face made a like a facebook chatbot that used ink and they did this they did a kind of natural language processing thing where you would type some things and then it would either say i don't understand that or it would pick the closest choice and if you have enough choices you can handle all of the things um i genuinely don't know how well that works i can sort of see it being frustrating in a kind of text adventure way if it keeps saying i'm sorry please you know i don't understand what you're saying so um, yeah i mean i've been recently looking into things like fuzzy search so you can if it's you can set a ratio score so if it's over 70 percent matching so there's probably some tricks you could you do with that and i think as well with um voice uh voice to text always helps if you know what the person is trying to say more or less if there's just one or two options if you're trying to match it 100 and then work things out it's much more difficult to transcribe but if, if you're looking for a particular command then that can be quite a lot easier but it's interesting that people completely outside of gaming were using it rather than a, a different approach um so yeah is there any other unusual use cases you can think of where ink's been used uh well the company that i've just started working at called better up are a mental fitness and wellness kind of company uh, and i sort of started working for them as a freelancer because they were interested in using ink to build um like mental health interventions um again using unity but you know could have been done in javascript um and i thought that was super interesting um i think because it's an open source tool a lot of people just all over who are looking for interesting tech solutions are starting to pick up on it it's like here's a thing that we could use and there would be no cost and it's you know really easy to quickly try out okay so can you describe what you're actually working on a bit that sounds really interesting uh well i kind of work at um better up studios which is something of an r d department so we're kind of trying out uh interesting new tech and trying to solve uh new problems and look ahead a little bit um we're using ink quite a lot as just a way to i mean obviously what we do is quite content driven uh, and quite um how do i put it um, text driven you know it's quite human so it's, it's so you said, you said it's like an intervention so is this someone uses an app when they're they're having an anxiety attack or something for example yeah it's there's a whole range of things some of them about looking after yourself some of them are training for uh, people in tough situations it's like a simulation almost of a, a difficult challenge uh, and that's written as a text adventure kind of thing um a lot of them have um more interesting inputs like ui inputs so you can have like sliders and text inputs that allow users to sort of state how they feel um and how well they relate to a statement being given um so we've done quite a lot of ink instructions is what we call them so we can write um bits of text and then ask the users to comment on how they feel about them this kind of thing mm, okay uh have you heard of people um creating this this type of content but then allowing users to input their own responses is that something that people do yeah totally i mean that's kind of what we've done there um, right and then we're able to store those responses and have that be part of their um you know we can then use that data to give them more customized help um That's we haven't done much kind of natural language stuff on that 
yet, but it's definitely on the cards. Like you can read what the person is actually saying um, mm. rather than having them choose between a set of choices. Mm -hmm. That's really, really nice. So you get the feedback and it becomes very personalized. That's cool. right. Yeah. Um, I, the, I was trying to think of uh, good examples in popular culture where um, this type of narrative branches and as an example that came up is Black Mirror's Bandersnatch. Like, what, what did you think of that episode? Oh, it's super entertaining. Um, <laughs> yeah, we actually talked to Charlie Brooker uh, at Inkle about that um, when he was trying to work out what tool to use. And I think they ended up just using either Twine or just like a whiteboard with sticky notes. Um, but Ink would have been a really good tool for them to use for that because it is ultimately just like a branching flowchart. Um, one of my old slides actually had the flowchart. You can see it all broken down and it's really quite simple. It's a lot, lots of, you know, go down here. Okay, now loop back up here or here's a choice branch here. This kind of thing is trivial to do in Ink. Um, so it's a really good tool for mocking it out. Although Ink doesn't have a way of visualizing flowcharts uh, by design because a lot of what you can do in Ink breaks the idea of a flowchart, like a single box because of, you know, procedurally generated content or content that changes each time or, you know, complicated variable stuff. It just doesn't work. Things don't fit in boxes um, when you start writing really interesting, complicated, interactive narratives. Um, so something like Twine actually kind of works better because it is constrained to boxes that branch. Um, so if you want to see things in a flowchart, um, it can be, yeah, Twine might be a better tool. So if you're making a huge project, um, do you think that, because uh, it's mainly writers that are using this tool, so um, would you say that a writer is more used to filling their mind with the story and being able to jump around it, whereas as a programmer, we kind of want to see this know, we want to see the connections. Do you think that's there's a different sort of mindset here, and that's why Inkle works really well for for writers. I think I think that's definitely a thing. Yeah, programmers like to imagine things as yeah more like formalized logic structures. I think um, as an attraction to flowcharts in that respect. Um, mm. I think, as I understand it, interactive writing is very much somewhere between like art and technology, you can't just be a good writer that doesn't produce good interactive stories. Uh, you need to have a something of a structural mind or like a logical mind. You need to be able to, you know, think about uh, branching paths, interesting variables, functions. You know, you need to do a little bit of programming um, or just understand the world in that way. Uh, and I, there's also a difference between structure, like plotting the big parts of your story and then the actual writing. The actual writing can be interesting and branchy in its own way that doesn't really fit nicely into dialogue boxes and can you know, branch based on what the character's seen here or here. Um, and there's a lot of editing where you play through your story and you think, oh, it didn't quite respond to something that I'd done earlier. I'll quickly write that in. And I think that process is quite getting into the weeds and it doesn't fit well in flowcharts, that kind of part of it. But the more high level you know, the broad strokes of, okay, the character's going to meet this person and they're going to kill them or not kill them. Or, you know, when they get to the end of the game, I want to register these three things. Um, then that kind of thing is really useful. So if you're plotting, flowcharts are great. Um, but when you're actually writing, I think you want something that's a bit more finessed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So are you actually working on any games at the moment? 
Uh, I've got a little tactics game that I keep fiddling with, but will never come out. Uh, I already <laughs> do it for fun. Um, otherwise, like I can say I've been sort of thinking about doing some VR development. Um, I really want to make it like like a straight up like time crisis kind of clone. Like there's yeah. no straight up good arcade shooters on VR, and it blows my mind. Or at least not on the quest. You know, something with points and lives and super. Yeah, you just you just want to have some just all out gun mayhem, don't you? Don't hit the hostage, like screaming right. type stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to play point blank again. That's quite <laughs> interesting that that's completely the opposite to like a fiction narrative. You're like, no, I want to get away from that. I want to. Yeah, I think there's a lot content. of truth in that. Yeah, I, mean, I, did it, I did it, you know, full time for six years and I'm exactly still most yeah. of my day. Um, yeah. So I, I found it's healthy to do different things. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. But also, it's just kind of me. I don't. I get bored when I'm doing the same thing too much. Um, yeah. Which is also why I never finish it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you'll get there. Just uh, hit, um, you know, submit and get it online. Is, right, where yeah. would you release it for uh, Oculus? I don't know. I haven't looked into it very much. Um, this is kind of a kind of pub chat kind of level of, of business stage, but. Uh, I think it has to go on the Quest 2 store. I don't think there's any other way around it. I mean, yeah. the Quest is where well, that's where all the devices are. And I don't think there's any other way of getting something on there. Um, I genuinely have no idea what the process is like, but I mean, I think all stores are open to indie developers at this point. So yeah. you have to make something great and then tell them about it and then and sell then, it. And then you're on. Uh, yeah. What are your, Have you looked much at um, Project Cambia coming from uh, Facebook? That's their new Oculus VR headset that they're working on. No, I didn't even you know haven't that. heard much. So basically, they're going to have cameras inside of the VR goggles so it can track where your eyes are looking. Ah, and also yeah. um, detect your kind of facial expressions. Do you see that as making VR even more adoptable? Or um, do you think it's not something that should be considered important? I have no idea. I can see how it'd be really useful for like um, analytics, like if you're testing a game and you want to like get a sense of where players are looking. Um, it's probably a great analytics tool. I, I really can't think of any um, interesting game ideas that come out of that. Like, if you liked this statement, please smile now. That seems really weird. <laughs> I'm sure there's something. I'm sure somebody will think of some clever ideas. But that reminds me of the Connect. <laughs> I don't know if you use the Connect much. I right. used to make a lot of uh, installations with it. <clears throat> for marketing and um the connect had this feature where you could detect if someone was smiling or looking sad or raising their eyebrows and um it was surprising where we started using it actually uh it just yeah, yeah because you could do things like if someone was standing in front of it and struggling you could make the game a bit easier whereas if they started smiling you could like you know change the content so oh, there's some interesting cool. places for that but i think more for me it's um you know, when you're when we're communicating, you especially communicating in person, you, there's a lot of eye contact. There's a lot of facial figure features that you pick up on, and I think that VR at the moment is definitely missing that aspect of it. Um, so I think that by being able to control this more, I think it will make virtual reality experiences a lot more. Um, intense and like like you're really present with someone 
So I'm thinking that I'll probably buy into VR and start producing VR apps once the Project Cambria comes out. I'm kind of holding off a little bit at the moment. Um, oh, that's super cool. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I was playing uh, VR mini golf a bit with a friend yesterday, and it does feel a lot like audio chat where you also both have to be playing golf rather than two friends are in a space and are having a conversation with each other in that yep. space. Exactly, um, exactly. And it's not something I necessarily mind, but I can definitely see how you could create more interesting experiences by having, you know, actually having a sense of being near a friend. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And how is it for you working for an American company um, from England? Because you've obviously got the time difference, you've got, you don't have your team around you. How do you find that? I miss having a team around me, that's for sure. Um, I've changed my work day a little bit. I used to start early, but that doesn't really work because America doesn't wake up till, you know, at least two. Um, so I tend to work slightly later now and start a bit later. Um, it also helps that the company is kind of spreading out. Um, there's now like European offices. Um, even if that's not where my team members are, it's kind of helped the company realize that oh, we need to be more accommodating to people with different time zones. So for the kind of uh, US Europe time zone, there's like the kind of three, four hour sweet spot where everybody's online, <laughs> where all the meetings happen for better or worse. And what tools do you use to do that? Um, the normal ones, Google Meet, Slack. Um, We've been playing around with some tools to kind of create that water cooler feeling um, that is completely missing in a post-COVID world where, you know, so many of the best conversations would just come out of like lunch chats where you'd go buy a sandwich with somebody. And that's the thing that's completely gone away now. And I miss it a lot, um, like sporadic conversations. Mm. So we've been playing, there was an app called Tangle that was actually made in Unity. And it's kind of got this idea of, it's like a, gives you a room in a space on your computer and then you can open the door and then everything you say is kind of um, projected outside to everybody else who's got their door open and you can all kind of go into the same room and you can chat um, and you can kind of customize your space. It's all quite abstract, but the idea is that you're kind of on chat all the time if you want to be, you can close your door if you don't want to be, but if you open it, then you're free to have a conversation with anyone. And it's a kind of an invitation for someone just to say, Oh, Hey, have you done this thing? Or, Hey, do you want to talk about this? Um, which I think is a really lovely idea. That, that's that's nice. Yeah. yeah. There's a few things like that that are sort of popping up to solve this problem. Um, I'd like to see where they end up. Um, but there is still a kind of, it's easily forgotten and they often feel a bit too much like work. They don't feel like a break, like a water cooler, you see, <laughs> or whatever, you know, similar. We used to have a puzzle in the Inkle office. We sort of chisel puzzle and we just go down and drink coffee and do the jigsaw puzzle. It was just the pest like, <laughs> atmosphere for just kind of chatting if you want to or not, just take a break. Um, I guess this is where this virtual reality with the more connected could work really well because you could just go and the water cooler is like a little game that you could just go and play or draw yeah, the drawing and stick it on the wall. Um, so <laughs> we started that... doing Radio Taiso in VR, which is the um, the Japanese daily exercise regiment where everyone sort of gets <laughs> up on the rooftops and um, does exercises along to the radio. Um, we started doing that in VR, which is super fun. Um, and you get to cool. see people do this because obviously it's only tracking arms. Um, yeah. But there is still the issue of like everybody has to be like, okay, I'm going to get in this space and I'm going to put my headset on and it's going to take five minutes to load. And 
it's not really seamless. And yeah. it still feels a little bit like, okay, time to go onto another screen. Mm. It doesn't feel like a break in the same way. Yeah, sure. So it's uh, the best thing that we've done so far. So <laughs> we're going to keep looking for solutions, as I'm sure all the remote companies are. Yeah, yeah. And how about tools like, do you, um, or more methodologies, do you use Kanban styled boards or Trello? How do you like manage projects? I try to personally avoid as much uh, like task management as I can. I find it often drains a lot of time. So I just have like a list uh, in Asana if I can get away with it. Um, although when I'm working in like development teams, the engineering teams, then there's sort of Jira, Kanban boards, weekly scrums, that kind of thing. Um, mm -hmm. The part of the company I work in is more R&D. It's more sort of uh, self-led. So it's kind of, yeah, just stick a note on paper. <laughs> Our methodologies are changing quite a lot. It's a very new part of the company and we've only been there for three months. Yeah. So check on me again in three months and I'll let you yeah, know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, cool. <laughs> all right. Well, I think I've covered all the, the bases. Um, it's been really, really nice catching up with you. And um, yeah, I'd love to take you up on the follow-up at some point. I think that'd be really cool to dig a little deeper. Um, so yeah, thanks a lot, Tom, and we'll be speaking to you soon.